begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, do, you, do you consider yourself a follower or a leader? They don't, you don't have to say it out loud if you don't want. Right? Some of you are elbowing. It's a, it's a good question, and my guess is at different points in your life, you have asked that of yourself, right? Whether it's in a, in a work setting, maybe it's in sports, uh, maybe it's just in, in your school community, maybe it's in your, your, your regular community with your neighbor. Like, I think there are times when we ask ourselves, are we, when I ask myself, am I a leader or am I a follower? The answer to that question is sometimes a little bit hard to determine, right? I would say, and I'm probably going out on a limb a little bit here, that almost every one of us, because we're Americans, in general would like to say, well, I'm a leader. Right? I think like in my gut, in my, my heart, I'd say, I want to be a leader, right? And in some ways, I think even the, the culture in which we live, in which we've grown up, says that is, is a far better thing to be than a follower, in fact, I'm going out on a limb even more, but my guess is that even when I posed the question, the concept of being a follower was maybe a little distasteful to you, right? Now, you've got to understand a little bit of that is because of the culture in which we live, the place in which we work and we have been raised and the influence around us, right? But, but I think at some point each of us ask, am I a leader or am I a follower? As I mentioned... The answer to that is a little more nuanced than just one or the other. There's a story I heard uh, specifically, this happened in a, in a high school. Uh, a sociologist came in and they asked everyone that was there, all these, these students, these high schoolers, about a certain pair of jeans that they had. And they asked, it was like an opinion poll kind of on these jeans. And, and uh, they purposely picked the most horrendous jeans that they could pick. Or I should say the most, well, because everything comes back in style at some point, right? So, but they picked purposefully the jeans that were the most out of style that they would assume that the kids were not going to have any interest in. And so they showed them to every kid, every, everybody in the entire school, and, and they, they kind of did the opinion poll, and, and all of their responses were, oh, those are hideous. Like, I'd never be caught dead wearing those jeans. Like, those are, those are terrible. Those are the worst things ever. They're t- terrible style. I've got no interest in them. So, okay. They gathered all the responses, right? Kind of wrote down everything. And then they left. And they just kind of let the school be for two or three months. About that time, kids kind of forgot about the poll, forgot about the genes to some degree. Then the sociologists came back. But they didn't go to the whole school. They picked out certain people within the school so they kind of witnessed, they, they, they watched to see who were the, the um, what they would have considered leaders, right? Influencers within the school. So uh, they asked, they asked uh, you know, captain of the sports team and cheerleader and, and uh, head of the debate club and, and the valedictorian. And, and uh, so they pick out individual kids from all these kind of different subgroups within the high school and picked out a kid from each. And they took them aside and they said, we want you to wear these jeans at school. It said, okay, we'll do it, right? They knew they were part of a study a little bit. And so they started wearing these jeans. 
and you can probably already guess what happened, right? They started wearing them, then other kids started wearing these jeans, and then more kids started wearing these jeans. And the sociologists came back and they did a very similar poll of the exact same pair of jeans of the exact same student body, and lo and behold, what had happened concerning their opinion of those jeans? They were not hideous any longer, right? Some of them owned them. Their opinion of them had completely changed. Okay. So leaders or followers. Again, I mentioned the answer to that is not maybe so simple in our lives. Because if we're honest, the reality is each and every one of us are influenced by, are led by, and are affected by the world, and the people around us. That's just the truth. Someone once said, uh, if you want to know who you will be five years from now, ask yourself two questions. Who do you spend your time with? And what books do you read? Okay? So if you want to know who you will be five years from now, who do you gather around you? Who do you consider intimate and close? And what books do you read? I think the reality we all understand is that in each and every one of us, there is some leader and there is some follower. But it is undoubtedly we are influenced and affected by the people and the things around us. Our text today is going to ask of us what influence, what impact does Christ have on you as one of his disciples, as a follower of him? Jesus talks to a few different individuals, but he's going to speak to us here today as well. Our theme this morning is simply that, that we want to be followers of Christ. But uh, today I want to kind of talk through uh, um, four different points when we talk about being a follower of Christ. Followers of Christ are patient, we set priorities, we consistently love, and the last one is we bind ourselves together. So those are kind of the sub-points that we're going to go through and it's important for us as we do that because God has asked us to share the good news of forgiveness with our world. Do any of you know what a brand evangelist is? Have you heard that term? If you're in the corporate work, workspace, um, brand evangelists uh, um, are those that would, that would uh, um, um, evangelize on behalf of a product, right? So companies love to do this. They especially like to do it like with young people, right? So if they can get young people using their product, becoming brand evangelists, they will share the good news of their latest iPhone or the new release of their shoes, right? Or any number of things. Um, this is pretty common within the corporate world, and I always think it's kind of interesting that at times the corporate world actually takes biblical words and uses them for their own purposes, because we know the word evangelist means to share the good news, right, specifically of Christ. Well, they've grabbed that and say, you can share the good news of your product. Uh, one of the preeminent brand evangelists that kind of pioneered that was a guy named Guy Kawasaki, so some of you have maybe read books by him. Uh, he was the brand, chief brand evangelist for Apple computers, for Macs back in the day, uh, when, when, when kind of that brand turned around and took off. Guy Kawasaki says this, says, great companies start because the founders want to change the world, not make a buck. Is that a pretty high bar for a new company? 
I think so, right? And it's fascinating because this is from a business standpoint. This is from a, a secular standpoint, right? That, that the founder of a company, you, you aren't there just to make a dollar, but you're there to change the world. So did Apple change the world? We might argue it influenced it, right? Will a pair of jeans change the world? Maybe you all dress the same, right? A pair of shoes. So it's a pretty high bar. What's fascinating about this is when we talk about Jesus, that's exactly what he did. He changed the world. And ultimately in our text today, that's whom Christ is asking us to follow. And so let's jump into our text this morning. As I mentioned, uh, we want to look at kind of those four areas. If we call ourselves followers of Christ, um, we'll be patient, we'll set priorities, consistently love and bind ourselves to one another. Uh, You're welcome to follow along in your bulletin if you like. Also, I'll have the the words on the screen here. Um, But we're going to kind of walk through this text. Now, understand just a little bit the context of what is happening here in in our our epistle of Luke. And uh, up to this point, in Jesus' ministry, and I would argue even in this gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus has spent a remarkable amount of time laying out for his disciples and the people of Galilee and all of Israel exactly who he was, right? Because if you think back, there there was a misconception about who Jesus was and why he had shown up. And, and that, that is actually not all that surprising because culturally, that's what the Jews were looking for. Remember, they were ruled by the Romans, so they had to pay taxes to Rome. They were under the boot of Rome. And so they, they, they desperately wanted someone that was going to kick the Romans out of their country. And so over and over again, generation after generation, the Israelites were looking for an earthly king. They were looking for a revolutionary, right? Someone that was going to lead them back to glory, the glory days of Israel. So Jesus has spent about eight chapters of Luke patiently over and over and over again saying, I am not an earthly king. I'm the king of all. I'm not just here to to feed you bread and put put, uh, bread on your plates, but I'm here to give you the bread of life and ultimately eternity. So, so Jesus has done that. All the way through, he said, I am nothing less than God above. I am nothing less than divine. Now at the point of our text here today, there's a little bit of a turning point. And you could hear it as we talked about it, right? Uh, that Jesus was turned himself and, and faced resolutely towards Jerusalem. And you know what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Ultimately, his death on the cross, right? And so Jesus has now turn that direction. And so his language, even in our text here today, changes just a little bit. I don't know this for a fact, but you almost think like Jesus had said, okay, uh, for the past two and a half years, over two and a half years, I've patiently showed you who I am. Nothing less than God above. But now it's time for you to consider that and ask yourself, are you going to follow me? He puts that question to three different people in our text, but he puts that question to us as well. So let's jump into it. The very first uh, few verses here, verse 53 through 55, says, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading 
for Jerusalem. So remember, this was a Samaritan village. Uh, um, Jesus was a Jew. They knew that he was headed to Jerusalem, probably knew that he was headed there for the festival. And they said, we want nothing to do with you. We've got no interest in a prophet from Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Do you know the nickname of James and John? Their nickname is the Sons of Thunder. Can you see how they got the nickname? (laughs) They, they They were not timid, right? They're like, these people are rejecting you, Jesus? Let's just put an end to it, right? Right? Let's just put an end to it. But Jesus rebuked them. He said, that's not how the gospel of Christ, that's not how forgiveness is spread. It is not advanced, and the gospel of Christ and even Christianity itself has never advanced through military might. It has always advanced one heart at a time, being changed to know the gospel. And so we get a little taste of that here, where Jesus tells James and John, no, no, that isn't how we're going to do it. We're not here to conquer. We're not here to destroy. We're here to change hearts, right? He tells that very thing to James and John. But you can maybe understand that reaction just a little bit. I heard a, a, a poll. They did a poll of Americans and their driving habits. And 85% of Americans rated themselves as above average drivers. Okay, so I'm a pastor, I'm not a math whiz or a statistician, but as far as I can tell, that math doesn't work out. I think above average is what? 51%, right? Um, But 85% of us rate ourselves as above average drivers. But therein lies the issue a little bit, and we see that reflected in James and John a little bit. It is always easier for us to see sin in others than in ourselves. We minimize our impact. We minimize our responsibility. We we minimize our mistakes. Ah, I just slipped up. You know, I was stressed. I was tired. I mean, who could you no one could expect me to react well in that situation, right? But when somebody else reacts to you that way, how dare they? What's wrong with them? How in the world could they use that type of language and offend me like that? In fact, not only did they make a mistake, but you know what? I think something's wrong with their character. There's something broken about them at their very core. See, I think we can understand James and John. Because in a sense, that's what they were doing. right? But the reality that Jesus rebukes them and pulls them back from is is that each and every one of us, as we stand before our perfect, righteous God, are sinful and are broken and are in need of a Savior. So, as followers of Christ, we're patient, just as our Savior was, consistently sharing forgiveness. That's our, our first point. Jesus then goes on to talk to a few, uh, three different individuals about following him. Uh, We're going to talk about what priorities he asks. Verse 57 through 58, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so this first one is interesting because that man comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you. 
Wherever you're going, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus' response is interesting, isn't it? Now, when we respond to people, we do the best we can, right? Listening to people's words, taking them for who they are, and we try to respond in kind. The advantage Jesus has is, is he knows what's in their hearts. And so it's kind of interesting, even as we read these three interactions, Jesus, Jesus knew something about each of these individuals, right, that was beneath the surface. And you are able, in a sense, to glean what he was understanding of their hearts from his reaction. So the first man says, I'll follow you. And what is Jesus' response? I don't have a house. I don't have cash. I don't have anything earthly. What do you think he was seeing in this man's heart? Probably that he wanted an earthly king and a revolutionary. Probably that the man was actually asking, I am not signing up for a savior and God divine, but I will sign up for a cause. (laughs) Can I join your army? Because I think you might be on the winning side. So Jesus responds to him and says, no, my kingdom is not of this world. I don't have a house. I don't have a bank account. And I will ultimately die on a cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem as a common criminal. Jesus' response to the first one. Our next one, though, verses 59 through 60. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So again, we're kind of gleaning what Jesus understood from their hearts. This one's a little bit different. Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. And the man's reaction First, I've got to plan a funeral, right? And maybe we're thinking in our heads, like, that makes sense because that seems like a loving thing to do. Like, we would plan a funeral. And even on some level, we're saying, well, why in the world is Jesus responding so strongly against this man's reaction? But again, Christ was reading the heart. And he knew this was a misplaced priority. He knew that this man had more interest in the things of this world, the organization of this world, in the tasks of this world, and whether it was a funeral or not, maybe it was your to-do list at home, maybe it was the work you had to catch up on in order to go on vacation, right? Whatever it was, he had a laundry list of things that he needed to accomplish. And once those were in line, ah, then Jesus, I'm, I'm with you. I just got to check these things off first. Jesus says, if that is your priority, you're dead. Because the reality of it is, everything this side of heaven will leave us. Nothing we own here, even family and friends that we dearly love, will stay with us into eternity. Everything rusts, everything fades, the wealth we accumulate, the careers we build, the respect you engender in your workplace with your families or in your communities, all of those things will go away. And here's a not-so-secret secret. All of those things at some point or another will let you down. They just will. Because nothing earthly was meant to be your God. Nothing earthly was meant to hold the entire weight of the world and your happiness and your eternal destination. 
And so Jesus says to him, your priorities are out of whack, out of line. Okay. The next man says this, still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So once again, Jesus says, your priorities are out of line. And he uses this illustration of a plow. Um, how many of you have done some plowing lately? I, we got one, nice. But did you, do, you have a, you have a, do you have a John Deere tractor? That helps you. Okay, see? Okay. It still counts. I'm giving it to you. You get credit for plowing, right? Um, but, but the truth is, you know, we, we have machines that help us do that. So if the illustration Jesus is using is to plow, to pull behind uh, an animal, right, in rocky soil, you've got to have both hands on it, right? Because you're probably going for a little bit of a ride and you have to guide it. If you tried to plow with one hand, not effective at all. And that's all Jesus is saying. Right? And I think we get that a little bit. When we talk about Christ and following Him, Christ is asking us to follow Him fully and completely in this life and into the next. Not with one hand on the plow and the other doing whatever else we want to do. Right? Not using the title of Christian but not living a life that is consistent with Christ. Right? Liking the label of being a follower of Christ, but rarely, if ever, actually doing the things Christ actually asks us to do. And so once again, Christ is just talking about priorities. Right? Him and His forgiveness being our sole focus. Right? So, as followers of Christ, we're patient. Second thing is, is that we prioritize. Right? Prioritize Christ and His forgiveness. And we let Him lead us, not only through this life, but ultimately into the next. That's whom Christ asks us to follow. Right? Now, you still might be squirming at that a little bit. Because as Americans, we do not want to follow anyone. Right? You all wanted to be leaders and have everyone else follow you. Great. It's made us a very prosperous nation, right? But the trouble is, we all follow something or someone. Everyone worships. The only choice you get to, to ask is, what are you worshiping or following? In our text today, Christ is just asking you to be honest, <laughs> to be transparent about who you follow. And he's saying, follow me. Now, what right does Jesus have to say that to you? These next few verses give us that. Jesus says this on the night before he would die. My children, I will be with you a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And so here's the real fascinating part. Christ is calling us to follow him. But ultimately, he has led us through death 
Through His death on the cross, you have forgiveness of sins and you are loved. And so what does Christ now ask of us as Christ followers? To love. To love one another. To lead our lives and let Christ lead our lives in that love. In our interactions with others. In, in, in our interaction with the world and those around us. And so yeah, Christ is asking. Christ is commanding you to be a follower. But he's not asking you to follow to a place that he hasn't already walked. Through death, to forgiveness, and to love. So as followers of Christ, we're patient, we prioritize, and we consistently love. The last one, we also bind ourselves together. Um, You heard this read from the Old Testament reading today from the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And I think we understand that illustration pretty good. I mean, even the kids pick that up. They understand that, that things that are individual are far weaker than when they are connected. And Solomon's using that. Um, this is an interesting one because it's oftentimes chosen as marriage texts. But to be very honest, and it, it does work for, for marriage, right? We talk about it husband and a wife in Christ in a cord of three strands. But uh, to be very honest, contextually, Solomon's actually talking about friendships and relationships in our world, right? That we are stronger together than we are apart. Now, just like plowing has modern day John Deere tractors and things like that, um, the rope that I had up here, I would guess was put together with a machine in some shop, right? Braided together. Uh, Back in the day, that wasn't the case. Uh, So you had to make ropes by hand, and the standard length of rope in Great Britain was 1,000 feet long. So you had to have a building that was at least that long, and most of the time, buildings were incredibly hot, um, um, and you just didn't have that kind of real estate. So they would lay out their ropes, and they would braid their ropes together on what are known as rope walks. So this is a picture of one. Um, This is in Liverpool, England. This is considered, a, this was a, a common rope walk. It was just a street, but it's where all the rope vendors, the rope manufacturers would lay out their rope and they would patiently and consistently, for a thousand feet at a time, braid these ropes together. They estimate that the ships at the time that rope making was most common, uh, on average, they had 31 miles of rope on a single ship. You were well employed if you were a rope maker back in the day. Right? But that's how they would make them on these rope walks, walking into the future, weaving themselves together. And I think that's a beautiful picture for us as believers and even as a congregation, for husbands and wives, for families. As you walk into the future, we have the opportunity to weave ourselves together with the people around us and most importantly with Christ with his forgiveness and with his love. And what does Solomon tell us? We're far stronger for it. Uh, This is modern-day Liverpool. It's known as the Rope Walk District nowadays. No more ropes are built there. Um, Rich yuppies now live there, and a vibrant art scene and bar scene is what I am told. Uh, But it is labeled the Rope Walk District, right? This is a a view of one of the streets. At the very end of it there, you see a church. That is St. Luke's Church. Um, It is colloquially called the bombed-out church. Okay, That's St. Luke's. 
Here's the inside of it. Okay? St. Luke's was destroyed during one of the German blitzes in World War II. Um, everything burned other than the walls and the, the stone structures around it. Uh, it was built originally, I think, in 1830, somewhere about in there. So at the end of this rope walk, here lies a church, right? The bombed out church, open air, right? I think maybe that's also a beautiful picture for us as we walk towards eternity. Because the truth is, we get to do that together. And it does not matter if we have a roof over our heads or not. It doesn't matter if we are in a cathedral with marble uh, or simply out in the open air. Ultimately, we get to follow Christ and His forgiveness and His love. And some of you already did that. Do you remember this picture? This was from last Christmas when our building was not done. We did not call it the bombed out church. <laughs> we did call it under construction CBL, right? No roof over our heads. And yet it didn't matter <laughs> because we walked this life together interwoven with Christ and his forgiveness. And so Christ asks, asks you to follow. But again, not to a place that he hasn't already gone. And he is there welcoming you into eternity. Amen.